See, the death of Jesus demonstrates to all of us this morning that God loves us, that God actually, he loves me and he loves you. And the cross was a demonstration of that. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. This morning we, um, we were going through uh, the new members material and we were at the place where we talked about membership. And, uh, and I was going through this uh, document we wrote many, many years ago, the things we value. And one of the things we said we value as a church back then was participative worship, where you're involved, and it's not just a stage uh, presentation, but it's all of us trying to encourage one another. You know, in the body of Christ, back in the early days of the church, right, it says they gathered and two or three would have a word of an, of an exhortation or encouragement. You know, the larger a church grows, the harder it is to do that, uh, to, to allow other people to, spoke, to speak. That's why small groups are so important. But still, even in this gathering, I would love to see us Share, you know, I'd love to see you share. So, I, as I was sitting here this morning, I was thinking, I want to encourage us again to be thinking during the week. If God speaks to you, encourages you, if you see the hand of God in some way, you know, come on Sunday morning and be willing to share that with all of us. Because I, I think that is, is how we encourage, it's one of the ways that we can encourage one another. So if you've seen God work during the week in your life in a way that's just, just man, it just ministered to you, it's, it blessed you, made you feel loved by God, maybe more than normal or whatever, come, and, come prepared to share that with us and encourage all of us with that. Open in your Bibles to Mark 15. And uh, as, as Michael just prayed a minute ago, we are at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, in our study of the biography that Mark puts forth. And, you know, I was thinking about that, that it, you boys, we should just save this for, for Resurrection Sunday. But honestly, you know, every Sunday we're celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we meet on Sunday, because it was on Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. So there's a sense in which every time we gather together as a group, as the body of Christ, that we are remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, this morning we're just going to talk about the death of Jesus. Um, but And I'm going to do things a little bit different than I normally do. I'm going to read the text bit by bit, and I'm going to comment on it. And uh, this is a very familiar passage to probably most of you sitting in this room this morning. And, uh, but, I'm, but I'm hopeful that it'll be a reminder to you and that maybe you'll be, moved, you'll be moved in your inner being to love God more, to love Jesus more. So that's what we're going to do. And then as we come to the end, I have a few things that I want to say about the death of Jesus that hopefully will, will encourage us. All right, that's what we're going to do. So let's begin. Chapter 15 of Mark. Verse 1, as soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied up Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate uh, was amazed. By the way, if you're using an electronic Bible this morning, I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. All right, having found Jesus 
guilty the night in the early wee hours of the morning on some trumped up charges. And then when Jesus owned up to who he was, they said, well, we don't need any other charges. That's enough for us to put him to, to death. Well, that next morning or in the early hours of the morning, they tied him up and they carried him to a pilot in order to get him killed, in order to have him murdered. They were under the political leadership of Rome, and so they did not have the right to put anyone, they did not have the authority to put anyone to death. They needed Rome to get on board, and so they took Jesus to stand before Pilate. The Jewish ploy was pretty simple. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, which means, as we all know, the anointed king of Israel. And so he claimed to be the anointed king, and that should be a threat to, uh, to Rome. And so they said, hey, this guy's claiming to be a king, setting himself up opposite Caesar. The text tells us that Pilate interviews Jesus, asks him about his kingship and uh, his kingdom. Jesus says uh, that he is the king. He says to Pilate, he says, just as you say. And some of the other biographies tell us that there's a bit more of an exchange than Mark records for us between Jesus and, and Pilate. But all of them pretty much say the same thing. Jesus does not defend himself against the charges. He does not respond to the charges. And Mark tells us that Pilate is amazed by that. He's amazed by the fact that Jesus doesn't defend himself other biographies tell us that his wife warns him not to punish Jesus. And I can imagine that Pilate doesn't want to be manipulated by them. He doesn't want to be manipulated by them, but he's feeling the pressure uh, because he's the Roman leader in that area, and he cannot, he cannot endure another revolt. There's been a revolt. His leadership's under question. And so he's kind of feeling manipulated by them. Verse 6, at the festival, Pilate used to release for the people, a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels uh, who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. And Pilate answered to them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so as that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, what then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate came up with a plan along the way. He thought to himself, man, you know, I release a prisoner here during Passover. I'm going to set up a notorious prisoner I have, Barabbas, against Jesus. And I'm sure he thought they will choose Jesus over Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist against Rome. That would have meant that the people would have liked him, right? He was a stand-up against Rome, but he was also a thief and he was a murderer of the Jews. So they didn't like him any more than Rome liked him, and they were glad to have him incarcerated. But um, evidently on this day, and of course we've read the other biographies as well, uh, it says the, the leadership incites the crowd to ask for Barabbas. So Pilate thinks he has an out. He thinks they're going to ask for Jesus because surely they don't want Barabbas, but uh, they instead ask for Barabbas. And he says, what do I do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him, murder him, kill him on a cross. 
And, uh, and they keep saying that over and over again, especially the biographies record for us, they kept repeating that. Pilate feels the tension rising between the crowd and what he wants to do, but he eventually gives in to the crowd for fear of a, of a rebellion. Um, the events were a bit more involved than Mark records for us. If you read the other biographies, you'll find there's some other details that aren't recorded by Mark. Uh, his, his sketch is more limited maybe than some, but it's accurate in what it says. Verse 16, the soldiers, well, let me come in on this too. I noticed this this morning when I was going over my notes that, so he says, hey, I'm gonna give them over to, I'm gonna give Jesus over to be crucified. But you notice this, Mark says, and, and he gave Jesus over to be flogged. And of course, I, I missed that in my study this week that Mark does mention the, the cat of nine tails. Remember, that's the whip that has nine, nine cords that are embedded with pottery and stuff like that with which they whip Jesus 39 times. I think what happens next is where that occurs. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away to the palace, that is to the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. So there's a lot of men. They whipped him, doesn't say that, but they obviously flogged him. We know that from the other, from the other uh, biographies. Verse 17, they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him and getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. So after Pilate orders him to be killed or crucified, the soldiers have their fun with Jesus. They whip him, uh, which would have left him, as we all know, very bloodied and very weak. They whipped him and then they made fun of him. They put a purple robe on him and they put a crown of thorns on his head and they began to mock him and, and basically say, hey, O king of the Jews. I, I have this mental picture. It says they got down on their knees and I can see them drinking and maybe there's a free flowing alcohol. And, and so these guys are getting on their knees and and worshiping Jesus in a mock way or paying him homage in a, in a mock way and then laughing as hard as they could at their friends as they were making fun of Jesus. Jesus has been mocked all week long or all weekend or all, I guess the last 24 hours, he's been mocked quite a bit. He was mocked by Caiaphas and Annas, if you'll remember. He was mocked by their servants in, in that particular event. And he's mocked now by uh, the Gentile servants, the servants of Rome mock him. And uh, even this weekend with Israel, we've seen what, uh, what evil people can do, how cruel people can be. And, uh, and they were certainly cruel to our king. Verse 20, they led him to crucify him and they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning and they were uh, when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus carried his own cross to his crucifixion until he didn't. There became a place along the, what is known as the Via Dolorosa, which would be, I guess, Latin uh, or, 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 what do they speak in Rome? Roman? 
No, Latin. So the Roman, the, the language of, of Italy is, is Latin? Is what? I, I'm deaf. I can't hear you. Whatever it was. Okay. Via Dolorosa means the way of sorrow. Okay, sorry. I got, I got lost. Uh, it's the way of sorrow. On the way of sorrow, Jesus cannot carry his cross anymore. And, uh, and he falls into the way to it. And they conscript a fellow named Simon uh, of Cyrene. Tradition says that Simon became a, um, a believer. And in fact, his children that are mentioned here, Rufus, and what was the other one's name? Rufus and... Uh, Anyway, his children are mentioned, Rufus is mentioned later on uh, in the scriptures. But Simon carries his cross, and, and I guess what he witnessed led him to become a follower of Jesus, according to tradition. They tried to give Jesus some painkiller when he got there, some wine mixed with myrrh, but he wouldn't drink it. So they nailed him to the cross, and they hung him up between heaven and earth. The place where they murdered him was called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. That's what that Golgotha translated means, the place of the skull. In Latin, it's called Calvary. So whenever we sing of Calvary, we're singing the Latin word for the place of the skull. It was 9 a.m. in the morning when they hung him up. Above his head was the charge. He's the king of the Jews. Beside him hung two thieves, one on his left and one on his right. And the soldier sat at his feet and gambled for what limited possessions he had, which were just a few items of clothing. Verse 29, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. The same way the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah uh, the king of the Israel come down from the cross so that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Jesus would hang on the cross for six hours. Um, before he would die, he would endure the abuse of the spectators that were there to watch him die. The crowd mocked him and they said, hey, we heard you say you're going to destroy the temple in three days. I mean, if you could do that, surely you could come off the cross. So come on down off the cross. The priest and the, the high priest and the, the, the Pharisees, they mocked him as well, saying he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Hey, if you're the Messiah, come on down from there so that we might believe in you and uh, prove yourself to be the Messiah. And they mocked him. So how much of those six hours did he endure that abuse? I would imagine it was for most of that time, different people saying different things to him throughout those six hours. When it was noon, that would have been six hours of him hanging on the cross, darkness came, excuse me, three hours uh, of him hanging on the cross, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So Jesus is on the cross for six hours from nine to noon. I guess it's normal, but at noon it becomes, becomes dark in the land and that lasts until after he, he dies. And at three, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it to a, on a stick, offered him a drink. And he said, and said, let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
At noon, it begins to turn dark. And that darkness would last the rest of the time. And, and I've, I've thought about this. I'm speculating, of course. Obviously, I don't think the sun, I don't think the sun stopped shining or anything like that. But however God darkened the land, I mean, I've been in some storms where it goes from light to very dark. And I, and I think that's what we're seeing here. Some clouds rolled in that were so dark and, uh, and so black that the sunlight was blocked and the, and the land became dark and it was eerie for three hours. At 3 p.m., other things have happened. Mark doesn't record them. But at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to understand that I think that what God is doing here, what Jesus is doing, he's calling our attention to Psalm 22. If you've never read Psalm 22, you should read Psalm 22 because it's, it's a really clear picture of the crucifixion. I don't believe that Jesus believed that God was forsaking him. Uh, maybe he felt like God was forsaking him, but I, I, I know that Jesus knew that God was not forsaking him. The crowds think he's calling for Elijah. They know something is up. You know, they try to give him some wine to see, I guess, maybe to help him live. But with a loud cry, he surrenders the breath of life. Now, we know from another biography that the loud cry was, what was it? Anybody? It is finished. That was his last cry. Mark tells us that at that moment, God rips the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where the presence of God was supposed to be. So, you know, we might ask ourselves, and again, I, I, I don't know that the scripture comments on this, but it seems to be so obvious. God rips the Holy, and ho Holy of Holies curtain in half and it's obvious, uh, it's obvious, I believe anyway, it's obvious that he's punctuating, that he is giving us a new access into his presence. The only person who was able to go into the presence of the Lord at that point was the high priest once a year. I think God is saying, things are changing and I'm welcoming you into my presence. The Jews may have rejected Jesus, but the Roman Gentile centurion who was standing there and watching all of this, watching how Jesus died, stated what I imagine there were other people thinking, surely this is the Son of God. I, I think, you know, the, the weather, what they saw transpire with Jesus on the cross, all of that. In fact, one of the thieves who was hurling abuse at Jesus, at least in the beginning, at some point changes his mind and heart and asks Jesus to remember him. And so watching all of this, this man says, surely this was the Son of God. Verse 40. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And uh, in Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When Jesus died there on the cross, he did not die alone. Mary Magdalene was there. His mother was there, one of the other biographies tells us. These other women that are mentioned here were there. It's neat to realize, isn't it, that Jesus' entourage wasn't just composed of men. It was composed of men and women. And women were actually helping him all along the way, it says. And women had come down from Jerusalem who were following him. John the Apostle was there. Maybe some of the others were there. We don't know. It doesn't say so. But it tells us specifically that John the Apostle was there. 
In our home group on Tuesday nights, we're reading through the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we're paralleling Mark, which, you know, could be good, I guess. Maybe it's redundant, it seems like, but we're reading Mark on Sundays and John on Tuesday nights, and we're at the very same spot. And one of the things that somebody commented this past Tuesday was that John was courageous as it, as it relates to Jesus. You remember when he goes before Caiaphas and Annas, John is admitted in there, and he is, he's, and obviously he knows somebody, but he's in there. He's standing there at the foot of the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother, and with some of the other Marys. He is there. He stood watching at the feet of Jesus. And again, let's just be fair. It could be some of the other disciples were there too, just not mentioned, maybe at a distance. Verse 42. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after... He brought, and after he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. And Joseph and Nicodemus have obviously been somewhat secret followers of Jesus, but on that day, on the day they killed him, they didn't care anymore. Joseph goes to Pilate and he asks for the body. And notice it says he goes boldly to do so. Pilate is surprised that Jesus is dead. Nobody dies in six hours on the cross unless their legs are broken. That's, what they, that's why they broke the thieves' legs so that they would die before six. But he asked about, ask about him being dead and, and he's surprised that he would only die in six hours. But Jesus' legs were not broken and he died in six hours. And so he gave the body to Nicodemus. And uh, Nicodemus, you know, along with, uh, excuse me, gave the body to Joseph. And along with Nicodemus, the two of these men prepared Jesus for burial, did the spices, did the washing, buried Jesus in the tomb. What that meant was that both Joseph and Nicodemus, both devout followers of Jesus, of, of the, both devout Jews, both men of the Sanhedrin, they would be unclean for the next seven days which means they would not be able to to participate in the Sabbath. They would not be able to participate in any of the things, the festival of the Passover that was going on because they had touched a dead body. Numbers chapter 9. They would would not have been able to celebrate uh, the Sabbath uh, that Friday evening. So, uh, man, I look forward to those of you that are watching The Chosen. I, I look so forward to seeing them portray Nicodemus and Joseph in this moment, right? Two Marys were watching where they laid Jesus, but obviously the Marys did not know what Nicodemus and, and, uh, and Joseph, or Joseph and Nicodemus had done for Jesus. And they buried him in a tomb, we're told, that, uh, that Joseph had purchased, most likely for himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of the cross, and this is what he said, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it, the cross, meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus, the the starting point is the cross. 
The cross is not the ending point for us. It's, it's the beginning point. And it's obvious that the cross or the death of Jesus, because that's what the cross represents, is essential to the good news. And I want you to follow me because this is really where I really want to encourage you and I want to challenge you and I want to exhort you this morning. But, but uh, the, the, the death of Jesus is essential to our good news. Paul said that he passed on to us of most importance what he also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. The good news is the death of Jesus and it became the symbol of our faith the death of Jesus did. So we symbolize it with what? We symbolize it with a cross because it reminds us that Jesus died for us. So why was the cross so important? As the hour of Christ's death approached, the gospels tell us that he asked the father, he said, is there any way for us to do this? He says, is there any way I can, can this cup pass away from me? And can we do this some other way? And the cup was obviously referring to his death on the cross. Is there any way that we can do this other than, than my death? And then, and then he said this, what we need to all say, but not my will, but your will be done. But the father said, no, there's no other way to do this other than your death. So what did the death of Jesus accomplish for us? I'd like to show you five things that the Bible says the death of, maybe we might could find more, but I'm going to show you five, which are really three, and you'll, you'll understand as I go along. But I'd like to show you five things that the death of Jesus did for us biblically. Number one, by his death, Jesus canceled out our legal indebtedness. In his letter to the church at Colossians, chapter two, here's what Paul said to that church. He said, when you were dead, in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him, with Jesus, and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. According to Paul, anyway, your sin caused you and me to have an indebtedness towards God. And uh, what is that indebtedness? What is that debt? Well, I I'm going to suggest to you that that debt is your death. The debt you owe for your sin is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve that if you eat of the tree that he forbade, the wage would be death. You would die. The debt of their sin was death. And all of us have sinned. And all of us fall short of God's perfect design. And the result is brokenness. And the ultimate brokenness for all of us is death. All have sinned. All die. When God gave Israel the law, he said the person who sins, who violates the law, shall die. And evidently, and, and, and not that I understand this, and I'll talk about that more in just, a, in just a few moments, so hang in there. Evidently, the death of Jesus, by allowing himself to die for us, Jesus canceled out the death, the debt of death that was against us by nailing himself to the tree, by killing himself, by allowing himself to be killed on our behalf. Thus, God is just and righteous to restore our lives and to raise us from the dead, to give us our life back. Amen. 
So the death of Jesus cancels out your indebtedness against God. I may not have it right on what that indebtedness is, but I believe I'm right. I believe the indebtedness that you owe God for your sin is your death. Number two, by his death, Jesus rescues us from the curse of the law. Galatians chapter three. For, this is Paul writing to the church at Galatia. He says, or the churches at Galatia. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it's written. Everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does the things, does these things will live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Well, I think Paul's telling the Galatians that the law cursed us. And Jesus hanging himself on a tree, Jesus dying for us on the cross, takes away the curse of the law. The law refers to God's enumerated laws in the Old Testament. It includes those laws that he gave the Jewish people to set them aside, to make them different. But it also includes the moral law of God that streams from the character of God. And if we don't keep the law perfectly, it says we're cursed. What is the curse? I think it's pretty clear from the text. The curse of the law is death. Jesus hung himself on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus took our death, the curse of the law, that's upon each one of us, and he dies for us to take that curse. He rescues us from the curse of the laws of God because we all fall short of the curses of the law. We all fall short of the laws of God. So we're all under that curse. And that curse, I think, is death because everyone who hangs on a tree, everyone who dies on a tree is cursed. Jesus took our death upon himself. But here I think I'm going to make it even more clear. Here's the third one. By his death, Jesus ransoms us. Jesus is the one who said that he came to give us life and gave his life for us as a ransom. Here's exactly what our king said. He said, whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave to all. Boy, we should really listen to that, right? Whoever wants to be great and first, you need to be the servant of all. Verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. So early on, when Christians thought through this, they came to the conclusion that Jesus had ransomed us from Satan. That we belong to Satan, that somehow we had given ourselves to Satan and his clutches. And, and Jesus ransomed us by exchanging his, uh, his life you know, with Satan. He ransomed us from Satan. Much like we ransomed some of our, our political American prisoners, our government uh, ransomed some you know, of our prisoners with money. Well, that's the same kind of thing. Jesus was ransoming us from Satan by giving his life to Satan so that Satan would set us free. They reason this because of things like what John said in, in his first letter. He said, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. And so Satan's goal, they said, is to keep us humans bound in bondage and sin and under its penalty. So they thought Jesus ransomed us back from the power of Satan. And Paul maybe seems to imply this in his verse to the Colossians where he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But 
In time, Christians rejected this original thinking. They said things like this, and and things which I agree with. Satan doesn't own us. And God did not owe any kind of ransom to Satan. So if, if that wasn't how Jesus ransomed us, how did Jesus ransom us? Well, how, how is it that giving his life, he ransomed us? You follow? That's the question. So I, I'm going to try, I think I'm going to help us with the Old Testament because Jesus was an Old Testament Jew. I mean, he, he was the pivot point between the Old and the New Testament. He grew up under the Old Testament. Here are some things the Old Testament says about ransom. In Exodus 20, 21, Exodus 21, if a man was... If a man was under the penalty of death because of a misdeed of his ox, for instance, if you had an ox and it was known to be a temperamental ox and it was a danger to human beings and you had been told, if your ox gored somebody and they died, you were under the penalty of death. You needed to, you needed to give your life. You, you were gonna, it was capital punishment. You were gonna die for what your ox did. Here's, here's, what, uh, here's what God said. He said that man can actually ransom his life for some money and thus not be put to death. If the people agreed who had lost the loved ones, he could ransom his life with money so that he didn't have to die. Hosea 13 verse uh, uh, 4, God says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Well, y'all might recognize that. Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15. But here God says, I will ransom them from the grave. I will ransom them from death. Numbers 35, 32. It says, you are not to accept a ransom for the life of someone who is guilty of murder. He must be put to death. In other words, ransom was to rescue someone from death, but you could not, rans- you could not rescue someone by ransom who was, who was under the penalty of death for murder. Leviticus 27, 29, no one, no one sentenced by the courts to die may be ransomed with a fine. Instead, he shall surely be put to death. So it seems to me that Jesus giving his life to ransom us, he was giving his life to ransom us from death. And I might add this, he said, I give my life as a ransom for many. Who does the many refer to? I suggest that the many refers to everyone in the world, both the Jews and the Gentiles, you and me. Here's what God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The son of man, for God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God gave Jesus in death for all the world. Jesus died for whosoever is willing. Whosoever is willing can be saved from perishing, from from death and have eternal life because death is the opposite of eternal life. Through Jesus' death, people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation can be reconciled to God. And it's why the Great Commission is so important. It's why we're to go into all the world, including our neighborhoods here, and and talk and share about Jesus and then take Jesus to the ends of the world world, and make disciples of him because Jesus came to rescue all of us from the debt of death that is all upon us. All of us know it instinctively and innately. I stand by that. I think you can suppress that truth, Romans chapter one, but I think all of us innately know it. 
Now maybe you've noticed this, and, if you, and I hope you're thinking with me and you're processing, all three of these things that I've just said are ultimately the same thing. Did you notice that? They're all the same thing. Jesus came to rescue us from death by his death. They're all saying the same thing. He, re- he, he, he rescues us from the curse of the law. He ransoms us from death. He pays our indebtedness by nailing himself to the cross, by allowing himself to be crucified for us, by giving his life for us. He takes care of our indebtedness. Here's my point. All of those are saying the same thing. Jesus dies for you because you are under the curse of death. And Jesus dies to pay. That's why the cross was so important. But let me give you two more. And these are different. These are different than that, okay? But they, so that's why I said there are five, but there's really three, all right? So here's the second one, or here's the fourth one. By his death, Jesus brings us near to God. Not only does our sin bring death, it relationally separates you from God, everyone. Every one of us are separated from God relationally by By our sin. Here's what Peter said. For Messiah also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The purpose of bringing us to God implies that prior to Jesus dying, somehow or another, we were far away from God, that we were were separated from God in some way. Paul agrees with Peter. Here's what he says to the church at Ephesus. He says, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. And by the way, everyone, the blood of Jesus is always a metaphor for his death because our life is in in our blood. Slice your wrist, cut the jugular vein in your neck, and you will die because your blood will go and you will die. For Jesus to shed his blood means he gave his life for us, and we who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We've been brought near to God by his death. In the Old Testament, God says this about sin. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. His ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities, your sins are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Now, I want to be quick to say this. The death of Jesus has brought us back into fellowship with God. We who are believing in Jesus are not far from God. We are not separated from God. Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do you remember the story in Adam and Eve? Their sin made them hide from God. When they were cut off from God and separated from God, I mean, it's really their sin that led them to hide from God. It led them to go into the bushes and cover themselves with fig leaves. And it was God who was seeking after after them. But it's the death of Jesus that made a way for us to find our way back to God. His death has brought us near to God. And finally, by his death, Jesus demonstrates clearly and convincingly two aspects of the character of God. The first one is this. He demonstrates that God is love. And maybe more specifically, he demonstrates that God loves you and God loves me. That's what the cross demonstrates for us. Here's what what Paul said to the church at Rome. You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Messiah died for the ungodly. That'd be you and me. For very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, 
Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were not a good person, while we were not a good, great, godly person, while we were still sinners going away from God's perfect design, Jesus died for us. See, the death of Jesus demonstrates to all of us this morning that God loves us, that God actually, he loves me. And he loves you. And the cross was a demonstration of that. Now, the, the cross of Jesus may have been more than that, but it was nothing less than that, right? That Jesus loved us, or God loves us. And the second thing that it illustrates of the character of God is that God is righteous and just. The death of Jesus is a demonstration of the justice and uprightness of God. Early in Romans, Paul said this about the death of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 25, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. Again, blood meaning the death. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus The death of Jesus was a demonstration of God's holiness, of God's justice, of God's righteousness. Somehow before the death of Jesus, God showed restraint. He showed restraint. Maybe he planned, maybe his restraint was planning for Jesus to rescue and ransom all of us from our sin. But the death of Jesus makes God just in his forgiveness of us, of our sin, and his rescue of us from our death. The death of Jesus makes God just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in him. Man, I just think that's so good. So I've answered the what question. What did the death of Jesus accomplish? Let me review. His death, he died to rescue us from our indebtedness, our death, the curse of the law. He died to demonstrate to you and me the love of God for us. He died to demonstrate, he died to... um, demonstrate the love of God and he died to demonstrate the justice and righteousness of God. And I I think I left my middle one out, didn't I? Oh, he died to bring us near to God because relationally our our sin makes us hide from God and and cuts us off from God. And and so um, that's that's the what question. But there's a how question too. I'm almost finished. So mentally hang with me. There's also a how question. How did Jesus' death do this? How, did it, how does Jesus' death rescue me from the curse of the law? How does Jesus' death bring me near to God? How does Jesus' death show the love and righteousness of God? You know, people have come up with all kinds of theories as to how the death of Jesus did that. There's a whole bunch of them out there. They're called theories of atonement, and I would urge you to study them. I'd urge you to not wait on me to, to just go out there, study, type, type in theories of atonement and, and, and read for yourself, figure out what you think. Maybe it's the how question. I don't really have a, an answer to the how question other than I think the what question kind of answers some of the how question, right? But I'm gonna make this one simple statement about, about the how. Somehow in the plan of God, in the love of God, in the righteousness of God, and in the justice of God, Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' death is given as a substitute for Jimmy's imperfect life and Jimmy's sin and Jimmy's death. 
I mean, there may be a whole lot more to the theories of how Jesus did it by his death, but in some way, some form, or some fashion, Jesus is substituting himself for me. And then there's the why question. Why, why did it have to be the death of Jesus? Why couldn't God have, I mean, God is God, right? I mean, he's the creator of all of us. He's the creator of everything that exists. I mean, why did it have to be the death of Jesus? And you know what, man, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Even Jesus in his humanity, even Jesus in his humanity asked the father, he says, is there any way we can do this without being that my death? And of course the father's answer is no, there's not. And so I don't know why, I don't know why it had to be the death of Jesus, but in God's just and loving and perfect reasoning, it was he himself who would substitute himself at some level for us and rescue us and ransom us and free us from the penalty of our sin. John R. Stott said this. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, because I've been talking about the cross as being something done for you. Before you can see the cross as something done for you, for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Did you get that? Before you can see it as something for you, you have to see it as something done by us. And here's what he means. Jesus died because I'm a sinner. Jesus died because you are a sinner. Do you realize that? Do you realize that Jesus gave his life for you because while you were yet a sinner, you needed him? That you can't rescue yourself from your death? You need God to help you. And until you realize that Jesus died because you needed him, you'll never really understand the idea of what Jesus did for you by his death. You've got to see your need. So I'd like to end this morning by asking all of us this question. Uh, all of us put Jesus on the cross. All of us, every one of you in this room put Jesus on the cross because all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. Jesus died for all. Jesus died for you. But here's my question. But his death is only applied to those who by faith trust him, trust his word, put their confidence in him. They, they follow Jesus. So here's my question. Have you, at some point in your life, and I know this is kind of one of those in your face sort of messages, but, but Jesus' death was in our face. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? I mean, that's what this whole thing is about. It's about us recognizing that Jesus died for us, and he says, I love you. I want you to love me and follow me. Are, are you one of his followers? No, I'm, I'm asking that, and I want you to answer that. And since nobody is seeing your answer but you and God, answer truthful in your heart. Are you one of Jesus' followers? Have you put your faith in Jesus? So here's my follow-up question to that. Is there any reason this morning you would not turn from your brokenness if you are not a follower? If you're being honest in your heart and you say, hey, I've heard all this, 
I'm, I'm not there yet or I haven't come. But, but you recognize, man, I'm not there yet. But is there any reason why this morning you would not turn from your brokenness? And by that I mean recognize that you can't fix your brokenness, that you need someone to intervene in your life. Is there any reason why you wouldn't put your faith in Jesus right now and begin to follow Jesus right now? Is there any reason I'm going to tell you all something. I think about this often because we talk about evangelism and wanting to share Jesus with others. And, and I, I put myself at a gas station somewhere or I put myself just anywhere and, and some Muslim comes up to me or some Buddhist or some Hindu follower comes up to me and he says, hey, can I have five minutes of your time? And he proceeds to tell me why he's a Hindu or why he's a Muslim. And, and then he tells me what he believes about Allah or what he believes about you know, the plethora of gods out there. And then he asks me, hey man, would you put your faith in Buddha? Would you put your faith in Muhammad? No, I never would, right? I mean, I'm a thinking person. I mean, unless their God was real and he's doing something, I mean, I'm not gonna make such a life-altering decision in five minutes. It's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. But here's the deal. God is constantly, the true God, the creator is constantly at work. He's constantly testifying to you the truth of his existence. He's constantly, by his spirit, I believe, working in your heart, drawing you to himself, speaking to your heart. And so some of you sitting here, God's been working on your heart, and, and, and today, maybe the day that you'd be willing to say, yeah, God's been working in my heart, and I'm willing to turn from my brokenness, my getting away from God's design, and I am willing to put my faith in Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.